Funding for On Trial was provided by the Smith Richardson Foundation. Welcome to On Trial. I'm Morton Kondracki. Our topic, resolved that Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court should be confirmed. Is Robert Bork a dangerous right-wing ideologue and a threat to our civil liberties? That's what his critics claim, but his supporters say that Judge Bork's only ideology is his devotion to the Constitution and the rule of law. Which side is right? Our two antagonists are Michael McConnell and Alan Dershowitz. Professor McConnell, who will argue in favor of Judge Bork, is professor of constitutional law at the University of Chicago Law School. From 1983 to 85, he was assistant of the Solicitor General of the United States. As a litigator, he specializes in First Amendment work, and he's argued for before the Supreme Court many times. Professor Dershowitz, a 23-year veteran of the Harvard Law School, has also won international renown as a defense lawyer. Time magazine called him one of the nation's most distinguished defenders of civil rights, and Newsweek called him the country's top lawyer of last resort. Professor McConnell's witnesses will be Andrew Fry, who served as Deputy Solicitor General of the United States under Presidents Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan, and Dr. Thomas Sowell, Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution and author of 17 books, including The Economics and Politics of Race. Mr. Dershowitz will call Alan Morrison, the director and co-founder of Ralph Nader's Public Citizen Litigation Group, and Marcia Greenberger, founder and managing attorney of the National Women's Law Center. At the close of the proceedings, our on-trial grand jury, a group of legal professionals, will vote on Judge Bork's fate. Mr. McConnell, as the counsel for the affirmative, the first move is yours. Thank you. This is a strange world, Mr. Moderator. The, pro the president has nominated to the Supreme Court one of the nation's most distinguished legal scholars, a man whose intelligence, ability, and integrity even his opponents acknowledge. Robert Bork is called a conservative, and so he may be in his personal politics. But what stands out in Judge Bork's legal career is his conviction that a judge's politics should not play a part in his judging. He believes that Congress and our representative institutions, rather than the courts, are entitled to make social and economic policy in the country unless there is some prohibition that can be found in a fair reading of the Constitution. Judge Bork's constitutional philosophy can be summed up in two parts. Vigorous protection of constitutional rights and liberties that are actually grounded in the document, uh, coupled with a refusal to override the results of the democratic process in other cases. 
Moreover, Judge Bork has repeatedly stated that he would not vote to overturn past decisions of the Supreme Court, even if he thought they were wrongly decided, unless they were, in his words, a terrible mistake or pernicious. In ordinary times, Mr. Moderator, such a nominee would sail through the confirmation process. In fact, just last year, before his presidential ambitions got the better of him, Senator uh, Joseph Biden stated that if the president named someone like Bork, I'd have to vote for him. And if the groups tear me apart, that's the medicine I'll have to take. Well, since that time, what Biden calls the groups, the various special interest organizations that exercise such power in Washington, have dished out their medicine. Their line of attack is that Robert Bork is a dangerous radical who will upset the so-called balance of the court. And yet on closer inspection, as we will see, those charges turn out to be exaggerated, unfounded, and out of date. But why is there this frenzy of opposition? For over 20 years, the left has been quite open about using the courts to bring about social change, which they define as such things as abolishing capital punishment, protecting pornography, creating a constitutional right to higher welfare payments. In recent times, the right has adopted similar tactics. Judge Bork opposes both. The real issue in this confirmation battle is whether, on these and other issues, uh, ideological groups in Washington, liberal or conservative, will be able to win from the courts what they have not been able to win from the democratic process. Thank you. And now for... And now for his opening remarks, Alan Dershowitz. Thank you. If Professor McConnell's uh, description of Robert Bork's judicial philosophy is accurate, then we're going to see today how he himself, just, just as Judge Bork, uh, does not follow that philosophy. A Newsweek magazine recently quoted a senior White House aide as warning that it's, quote, a mistake to try to make Judge Bork into something he isn't. The aide went on to acknowledge, indeed to brag, the truth is that he is a right-wing zealot. In the interest of truth and open democratic debate, let us please be honest here today and not try to obscure Robert Bork's 25-year public record of radical authoritarianism. Robert Bork was nominated precisely because of his extremist ideology. As Bruce Fine, a former Reagan lawyer and current administration confidant, recently put it, on the cutting issues, the fighting issues, abortion, affirmative action, free speech, church-state, Bob Bork's presence and vote on the court will make a difference. And this is exactly the reason the Justice Department selected him. But there's another, even more sinister reason why the Justice Department has pressed so hard the Bork nomination for the swing seat on the high court. Bork has testified repeatedly that he believes the special prosecutor law is unconstitutional. He could cast a deciding vote against such laws in several important administration cases that are now under investigation. Among the administration officials being investigated by special prosecutors, two of them, is none other than the chief of the Justice Department, Attorney General Edwin Meese. I can understand why Mr. Meese would feel a lot more comfortable being judged by the man who fired Archibald Cox than by a real believer in judicial restraint who would accede to the will of Congress which enacted the special prosecutor law. As we will prove through our witnesses today, Robert Bork is no believer in judicial restraint. He is an opportunistic hypocrite who selectively invokes judicial restraint only when it serves his extremist right-wing agenda, 
while actively thwarting the will of the elected branches in the interests of big business, an imperial presidency, and out-and-out out racism. The one thing we will accomplish here today is to expose the real Robert Bork. The administration is trying to have it both ways by speaking out of two sides of its mouth. When it speaks to middle America, it tries to remake Bork into a moderate. When it whispers to the extremists on the right, it tells the truth. The real Robert Bork is the enemy of personal liberty, who has repeatedly compared the right of married couples to engage in birth control with the right of a utility corporation to generate smoke pollution. The real Robert Bork is the enemy of racial integration who described the principle underlying the public accommodations law of 1964 as a principle of unsurpassed ugliness. The real Robert Bork believes corporations have more rights to personal liberty in their boardrooms than ordinary Americans have, to, have in their bedrooms. I have to interrupt Thank you, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. McConnell, call your first witness, please. I'd like to introduce Mr. Andrew Fry, a private attorney with Mayor Brown and Platt, who served for 14 years as a career deputy solicitor general in the Department of Justice, including four years, the entire four years in which uh, Judge Bork served as solicitor general. Uh, Mr. Fry's testimony will be particularly interesting uh, to, to all of us if you know a little bit more about him, including the fact that he was once uh, nominated for the uh, Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia, uh, and his nomination was uh, withdrawn after there was political pressure based upon his support for abortion rights and his support for handgun control. I think you will agree, therefore, that Mr. Fry will op offer the, uh, a unique opportunity for a nonpartisan and objective analysis of the way Robert Bork goes about reaching legal decisions. In your personal experience with Robert Bork, uh, Mr. Fry, did he allow his own politics to get in the way of interpreting the law? Well, I think one of the things about uh, Bob that the people who uh, worked with him in the Solicitor General's office most respected uh, was the fact that he uh, had a very clear sense of his role as Solicitor General and the differentiation between his responsibilities as Solicitor General and his personal views. Uh, to take an example where he is uh, known to hold very strong views in the area of antitrust law, um, he conceived it to be the responsibility of others within the government, the assistant attorney general in charge of the antitrust division and the Federal Trade Commission, to set antitrust policy. And on numerous cases during the uh, time he served as solicitor general, uh, he signed briefs and allowed them to be filed that espoused positions that were quite different from those that he as a scholar uh, believed to be the correct positions. Uh, I think, I've, I've tried to think about a case that would highlight his sense of personal uh, self-restraint and his ability to distinguish between uh, his personal feelings and the call of the law. Um, and perhaps the, the case that might capture it best is a case called Marx Against the United States, which was a uh, pornography prosecution of uh, deep throat certain people who had produced and shown a deep throat. Um, for various reasons, uh, Bob Bork concluded that the conviction that had been obtained and had been upheld by the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit was not legally defensible. And in the face of substantial pressure 
uh, from the United States attorneys uh, who had prosecutions affected by this legal issue, by the criminal division of the Department of Justice. He stood by what he felt were the rights of the defendants in that case. He argued the case himself before the Supreme Court, and under a very strong attack by Justices Rehnquist and White, who don't believe in confessions of error, he made one of the classic defenses of the obligations of the Solicitor General uh, to uh, confess error in certain narrow and necessary circumstances. Well, based on your experience, do you recognize this portrait of Robert Bork as an as extreme, dogmatic, and closed-minded? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, I would say that uh, on a personal level, his salient characteristic was his openness. His door was open. The people in his office, uh, the lawyers in his office who had very diverse uh, political views, uh, felt free to go in, felt free to express themselves, and on occasion persuaded him to change his mind on issues. So I would say he was the opposite of a dogmatic or closed-minded person. And could you describe his, uh, your general sense of his attitude towards civil rights and civil liberties? Well, again, I think his attitudes were respectful of constitutional rights and constitutional liberties. I think if you look at his record, um, in civil rights litigation as Solicitor General, you would find that uh, he filed a number of briefs that took uh, very expansive views of the rights of minorities, uh, views that may be far less popular with today's uh, administration, and sometimes that were more liberal, if I can use the term, than the Supreme Court accepted. And one other area that I'd like to mention is uh, in the case of the Fourth Amendment, one of his responsibilities with Attorney General Levy was uh, correlating the uh, foreign intelligence community in the Fourth Amendment and making sure that appropriate rules were established to uh, ensure that the Fourth Amendment was not disobeyed by the CIA and the NSA. And in that activity, he, uh, my observation was that he took very seriously uh, the constitutional rights that were at stake. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. McConnell. Mr. Dershowitz, proceed with your cross-examination, please. Mr. Fry, I'm uh, aware of the Marx case, as I'm, I'm sure you are. You've just discussed it. it. It's clear that the Marx case uh, had been wrongly decided below. They had simply applied a law to a defendant that wasn't in existence at the time of his conduct. Surely the reason that Mr. Bork confessed error was he knew he had no chance, absolutely no chance, of winning that case in the Supreme Court. That's not an example of a classic confession of error. Well, I would, I would say that it would be quite inappropriate for him to confess error in a case that he might win in the Supreme Court, since I assume if he would win in the Supreme Court... So he did what any lawyer would do. I mean, he didn't um, want to litigate a case fruitlessly when he knew he was going to lose. It's better to admit error right. than to have the Supreme Court tell you no. you're all wet, right? Well, That's I no think great praise. I think there's an important distinction. There are cases that he would litigate that he might know that he was likely to lose knowing the composition of the court, but where a principled uh, position could be taken in support now, now uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, Fry, you're clear, are you not, that Mr. Bork was clearly selected by President Nixon precisely because of his political ideology and not because of his judicial ideology. The best proof is you. Your judicial ideology is just like Mr. Bork's, but you were scuttled as a nominee precisely because of your own political views, which are different from Mr. Bork's. You contributed to uh, pro-choice, you contributed to the gun lobby, and you're not sitting on a court. Doesn't that prove to you beyond any doubt that Mr. Uh, the President nominated Mr. Bork because of his political views and not his judicial views? 
You're talking about President Nixon or President, uh, President Reagan? Reagan. Uh, President Reagan. We'll talk about well, President Nixon well, in a I minute. I don't think it proves anything about the topic of the debate today, which is whether Robert Bork is... Uh, is fit to be that's not the only topic we're talking about why court. the president picked him to be on the court you're convinced are you not that he was picked because of his political ideological views and he would have been disqualified for selection had he had your political views and contributed to the same charities you contributed well, to two, right there's two parts to that question alan i am i'm not uh, i am convinced that had he contributed to the charities i contributed to he would not have been selected that seems to answer I'm my not, question it does not answer the question the first part of your question suggests that his selection was based on political considerations. And of course I, it was. I, I do not believe, I think if well, people Well, you've admitted it. Him, you said if he contributed, I, if he had the wrong politics, he'd be disqualified. That means it was based on political considerations, at least negatively. Well, that, that, I think there is a logical fallacy in what you're saying, but if we'll I leave that to the audience. My, Let's turn to Watergate could, for like one to second. Let's turn answer. to Watergate just for one second. You were uh, there during Watergate, right? Are you examining right? me or are you I think uh, so. You were there speaking. during Watergate. Now, had, were you not? Yes, I was. And if you had been called by the president and told by the president, look, there's an investigation going on of a corporation, and that corporation, I own some stocks, and it's really hurting me, that investigation. I am, demand you to stop that investigation because it's losing me money. You would not have stopped that investigation, right? Well, I don't think that that is analogous I'm to what happened I'm not asking you Bob that. Moore. I'm asking you whether you would stop that investigation. Well, I guess I, I would it, want it since our time Let's leave is... it to the people to determine whether that's analogous, because what... Because it seems to me what President Nixon did there in demanding that an investigation of himself be stopped was corruption, and Robert Bork participated in that corruption. Your, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Fry. Mr. Dershowitz, now call your first witness, please. My first witness is Alan Morrison. Uh, Mr. Morrison, you were there also during the uh, Watergate scandal. In fact, you brought a lawsuit and which declared the firing of Archie Ballcox to be uh, illegal. Would you tell us what conclusions you drew from that about Robert Bork? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the fact that the court said that what Judge Bork did was illegal is not the most important aspect of it. What bothers me the most is what it shows about Judge Bork's attitude toward presidential power and toward the right of someone in the executive branch to overthrow a compact that had been made between the Congress of the United States, in particular the Senate, when it confirmed Elliot Richardson as Attorney General. And the Senate insisted that Richardson set up an independent prosecutor. And they insisted that it be Archibald Cox and that the prosecutor could not be fired except for extraordinary improprieties and the office couldn't be abolished. And in the heat of Watergate, when the president was ordered to turn over the tapes that would show whether he was telling the truth and his supporters were telling the truth or whether John Dean was telling the truth and the president ordered the firing of Archibald Cox so the truth wouldn't come out. When Judge Bork said, I think the president has the power to do that, it shows to me that he doesn't think very much of the responsibility that the officials have for obeying the rules and obeying compacts and he said he could do it just because he hadn't made the pledge to the Senate. Now, we've heard a lot here about judicial restraint. You did a study about uh, Judge Bork's presumed judicial restraint. What conclusions did your study reach? Well, our office did a study of the more than 400 cases that Judge Bork uh, participated in in the D.C. Circuit. And our study focused particularly on the 56 cases in which Judge Bork and the other judges on the court split. 
And we found out that in 28 cases in which the underdog was pitted against the government, that's consumer groups, people trying to get access under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, environmentalists, people like that, individuals, that Judge Bork ruled against the individual 26 out of 28 times. But when it was business that was suing the government in these split cases, eight out of eight cases, Judge Bork voted in favor of business. And that seems to me to be a very strange exercise in judicial restraint. He's perfectly restrained depending upon who's on what side of the lawsuit. What about access to the courts, the average citizen's ability to get justice from the courts? Well, you know, there's two ways you can lose a lawsuit. The first thing that can happen is you can lose on the merits. Those, those are the earlier cases we talked about. The second thing that can happen is someone can slam the courthouse doors in front of you. The government in many, many cases raises the doctrine of standing, says you have no business being in the courthouse. And Judge Bork in access cases has consistently ruled against access to the courthouse. He shut the courthouse door to the homeless, the Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II. He shut the door to consumer groups. He shut the door in 14 out of 14 split cases. He voted against access. Indeed, he has said that members of Congress have no right to go to the court when they are in a constitutional impasse with the president. Indeed, he said even the Senate of the United States and the House of Representatives are left to the political recourse alone when there's a constitutional dispute. As somebody who's devoted his life to the rights of the average American, the consumer, what will Judge Bork's uh, views on antitrust say about the right of average Americans? Well, I think what people really ought to understand first about the antitrust laws and the Supreme Court is that unlike most other federal statutes, the antitrust laws are written in very broad terms. And that means that the Supreme Court has enormous power to change the antitrust laws. And Judge Bork has written extensively on this field. And he has made it absolutely clear that he believes that many parts of the antitrust laws are wrong and that he would give far more protection to big business than he would to consumers and that the law is already given uh, to consumers. Uh, Dean Robert Potofsky of the Georgetown Law Center, a former member of the Federal Trade Commission, a renowned antitrust expert himself, has said that in 90% of the Supreme Court law in the antitrust field, that would be overturned if Judge Bork's opinions held sway. So is it fair to call Judge Bork an activist on behalf of big business? I think that's a very accurate description. Thank you. No further questions. Mr. McConnell, cross-examine, please. Mr. Morrison, if I were conducting a study to determine from a judge's record whether his decisions are outside of the mainstream, I think what I would want to know is how often did he disagree uh, with his colleagues? Uh, you've done a study. Can you tell me uh, what percentage of the cases in which he participated was the decision unanimous? His decisions were unanimous in about 85%. The average on the D.C. Circuit is about 90%, and nationwide in the circuit courts, it's about 99%. So he agrees with his colleagues about uh, unanimous about 86%. In which percentage of the case was cases was Judge Bork in the majority? Uh, I think about half of those, maybe so a little more. About 95%, perhaps? 95% of the split cases? No, of the cases in which he sat. Well, he's about the same percentage as everybody else in the D.C. Circuit, about 95%. And, and about how many cases did, and you might be, you can almost measure these on your hands and, and your feet and hands. Uh, how many cases was he alone in a judgment that he, uh, uh, that he made on, on these three judge panels? 
I don't recall the exact figure somewhere in the teens or 20s or something like that. Um, you claim that Judge Bork is outside of the mainstream. Who among the current active judges on the D.C. Circuit would you describe as the closest to being in the middle? Well, I guess I would... There's nobody I would say that's smack in the middle now, but I would surely say <laughs> that Justice Powell was in the middle no, of the no, Supreme Court. No, on the D.C. Circuit, who is closest to the middle? I think I'd better not answer that question because I'm sitting in the, in my, in the courtroom seat a lot, if and I, I were think to that's a pretty unfair question. If I were question. to suggest uh, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, would you say that, that, that she is that that's far from the she mark. She and Judge Starr, I would say, are about in the middle, well, slightly on either side. Could you side tell me approximately what percentage of the time Judge Bork and Judge Ginsburg agreed uh, in cases where they sat together? I would say that they agreed, including all the unanimous cases, very high percentage, just like he agreed with a high percentage would, with everybody would, else. Would 91% seem a sensible figure? And Judge Harry Edwards let me, and Judge Wall Excuse me, our time is almost up. Let's, let me ask you one more thing about your methodology. Uh, I'd like to describe to you uh, a Judge Milk Toast. Uh, he has sat on 100 cases involving the underdog. 50 of those he votes for the underdog, 50 of those he votes against the underdog. He is seconds. such so much a member of the mainstream that, uh, that he agreed that, uh, with his... Uh, colleagues unanimously in 99 of those cases, but in one of those cases he voted against the underdog and there was, uh, and there was a dissent in that case. Under your methodology, uh, how would he be rated? What percentage of, uh, uh, how much of an extremist would he appear? I don't think I figured that out, but I did figure out that you didn't tell me what he did in all the business cases where he voted for business every time. He would be 100%. He in would favor be, of business. And Sorry, so, Mr. McConnell, your, your <clears throat> time is up. Uh, thank, thank you, Mr. Morrison. Um, Mr. Mr. McConnell, call your next witness, please. I'd like to introduce Professor Thomas Sowell. Uh, in a sense, Professor Sowell requires uh, a little introduction. I think he's well known to, to people uh, everywhere, but he's been particularly well known to Professor Dershowitz, and thus is our introduction, I would like to read what he has said of Professor Sowell in a brief that Professor Dershowitz uh, signed and filed in the Supreme Court. Uh, Thomas Sowell, an outstanding economist who attended public school in Harlem, is now at Stanford University in Palo Alto, forcefully uh, articulates the following position, which um, uh, Professor Dershowitz then sets forth. Uh, I understand, uh, Professor Sowell, you first came into contact with Judge Bork's writings in the field of antitrust. Could you summarize briefly the effect of, of his views of antitrust upon the consumer, the little guy? Well, his whole uh, emphasis is on what is the bottom line in terms of what does this do for the consumer. Uh, that's true not only in his antitrust writings, but also in his uh, decisions on the D.C. Uh, circuit. Is it fair to say that... What he says is that the antitrust law should be reoriented in terms of protection of the consumer rather than protection of businesses? Absolutely. Um, another question, uh, Professor Sowell. What do you believe in general would be the consequence of uh, Judge Bork becoming a member of the Supreme Court? I think that insofar as his uh, philosophy prevailed, that you would then have judges being much less adventurous uh, in uh, social policy issues. And therefore, you would have congressmen having to stand up and vote and be counted and be accountable to the voters uh, on how they stand 
on abortion or gun control or whatever else the issue might happen to be. In that case, why do you suppose that there's so much opposition to Judge Bork in Washington? Because congressmen do not want to stand up and vote on abortion <laughs> and gun control and things of that sort. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Judge Bork's article that he wrote on the Bakke decision regarding yes. affirmative action? Could you give our, your reactions to that? Uh? Well, the, uh, the article dealt really with the legal principles involved rather than the result. In fact, he said at various places the results may be uh, good as policy, or may not. But that wasn't even the focus of the article. In fact, in much, in much of his writing, uh, he's clearly distinguished the policy result from the legal foundation that was used to reach that result. And in the case of Bakke, he argued that uh, there was really no legal foundation uh, that would stand up to scrutiny. Now, can you describe, the, uh, in your mind, the difference between Judge Bork and Justice Powell, whom he would be re replacing and who wrote the key opinion in the Bakke case? Uh, what struck me about Powell's decision uh, was that uh, he could not resist offering policy suggestions uh, in the Bakke case as to how uh, colleges might, in effect, accomplish the same social result uh, without uh, crossing the legal line. And I think that's, that may, be, may have been good advice for an attorney to give, but it was somewhat strange, it seemed to me, from, from the bench. Uh, judicial activism is often uh, justified on the basis that, well, perhaps the law or the Constitution isn't there, but at least it'll be good for, for the poor and the downtrodden. Uh, do you believe that that's true? No. Uh, I think that particularly in the crime area, no one has suffered more from uh, the sort of adventurous interpretations of the Constitution which have uh, uh, undercut the, the law enforcement than the minority communities. And I know that partly from statistics, but more so from having grown up in Harlem and understanding what the level of safety was at that time and what it is today. Do you think that the growing tendency to turn decision-making uh, in policy areas over to the courts is a good thing for the poor and, and uh, the little guy? No, because the people who have been described uh, heretofore as the, uh, the underdogs, uh, such as the environmentalists, which is really some sort of fanciful description, uh, are really by no stretch of the imagination the underdogs. Anyone can stand up and announce himself to be the underdog, but uh, that doesn't make him so. Thank you. Mr. Dershowitz, cross-examination. Uh, Mr. Sowell, you, you talk about Congress not wanting to vote on abortion, but Congress did in 1964 vote on public accommodations. And Mr. Bork uh, called the public accommodations law a law of unsurpassed ugliness. You certainly don't agree with that, do you? No, I don't, nor did he call it that. What he said was the what was of unsurpassed ugliness was the principle. Underlying the law. What was the principle that you could impose your morality on other people just because it was your morality minute, and you had the power. About, let's talk about that morality. Yeah. What we're talking about is a black person who wants to eat in a restaurant and the white owner wants to serve him in that restaurant. But the law says that he cannot serve him as long as a black and a white eat together. And Congress passed oh. the statute saying, no, no, we're not going to permit that kind of segregation. And the principle underlying that law, you think, is a principle of unsurpassed ugliness? No, because I don't think that was the law. I think the, 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 what you're talking about is the Jim Crow law, which forced segregation. That's right. And that's not what he was defending by any stretch of the imagination at we're any time. We're not talking about him defending Jim Crow. We're talking about him he's opposing about, a public he, accommodations law no, to well, his, 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 his argument was the familiar kind of state action kind of argument. 
which was that we're talking about a private individual and his private property making his own private Unsurpassed decision. ugliness is not a state action principle. It's an argument that you make about segregation and about Jim Crow. It's not a phrase you use to describe certainly a well-intentioned law to do away with Jim Crow. Now, do you own a home? If yes, you wanted to buy a home from somebody mm -hmm. who wanted to sell it to you, yeah. but that person couldn't sell it to you because it had a racially or religiously restrictive covenant, do you believe that the court should enforce that covenant? If Robert that's Bork the law, if, that, if, if, that, if that's the law, then it has to enforce the law. You can't pick and choose. It does. It has to enforce the law. The Constitution doesn't strike anything down as unconstitutional ever under any circumstances. The question is whether the Constitution strikes it down or whether the judge says that this is a bad thing and therefore I will then twist the Constitution to mean that. Do you think that it requires a twisting of the Constitution to say that a court will not enforce a racially restrictive covenant? Does that require a twisting? I don't see it in the Constitution unless and I if you don't a copy. See, by the way, you don't see desegregation in the Constitution. Do you think it required a twisting of the Constitution? I don't think so. The and neither, 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 neither did no, Robert No, no, no. I'm talking about you now. It's not in the Constitution, is it? The framers of the 14th Amendment clearly intended segregated education, didn't they? they Do had, you think it was unprincipled for the Supreme Court of the United States unanimously to require the desegregation of schools? Not at all. Then you do not believe in the philosophy of the Constitution that you're trying to spread right here today. A not philosophy that says if it's not in the Constitution, it is in the Constitution terms, because it says equal no treatment is in, the, is in the 14th Amendment. And equal and, treatment. And what happened in the South was not equal treatment. It was more than just separate schools for blacks and whites because it really wouldn't have been worth That's the expense. That's your idea. 30 it wouldn't, seconds. Have been, it wouldn't have been worth the expense for the NAACP to fight the case if that was all that was involved. If but it was a question of discrimination. Since I went to those schools, I know it was not a question that there was a white school here and an identical black school over there. That was never the case. And that's why I'm so shocked that you can support Robert Bork, who believes that it is perfectly uh, Mr. okay Mr. to Mr. define Dershowitz, the Constitution to permit that Mr. kind Dershowitz, of racism. Mr. Dershowitz, your time, your time is up. Thank you, Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Sowell. Uh, Mr. Dershowitz, please call your last witness. My last witness is uh, Marsha Greenberger. Ms. Greenberger, what real difference would it make in the life of a typical American person if Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court was confirmed? I think that Robert Bork's philosophy touches every facet of an American's life from the bedroom to the workplace. What Robert Bork has basically done is to define a constitution so narrowly that he gives no rights to women, for example, in the workplace, no rights to protect them against discrimination on the basis of sex under the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. He has viewed the Constitution in a way that allows no, for no right to privacy, no constitutionally protected right to privacy, which allows as a result states to pass laws that infringe on married couples' rights to use contraceptives in the privacy of their own bedroom. He has even defined the Constitution so narrowly as to provide almost no rights for parents with respect to their children and wrote an opinion in a case in the D.C. Court of Appeals, the France case, where he called tenuous at best a non-custodial father's right to even locate his child. Those are, in my view, such basic principles of constitutional rights that we have all depended upon, that Judge Bork has questioned over the years, 
that I think if his views were to be adopted, and if he were to be on the Supreme Court, the average American would find a very different America than they see today. Are you comforted by Mr. Fry's assurance that he would not vote to overrule prior decisions just because they were wrong, only if they were very wrong? Well, I think, first of all, that Judge Bork has called a number of decisions very wrong. He has said that he thinks that uh, the constitutional case is based on the right to privacy. The Griswold case, for example, that struck down a Connecticut statute that um, prohibited the use of contraceptives by married couples in the privacy of their bedroom. He called that case, which struck down the law, to be unprincipled. He's called the Roe case involving a woman's right to an abortion in consultation with her physician to be unconstitutional. He said in interviews that there are dozens of cases that he could list that he thinks were wrongly decided by the Supreme Court. There are a number of cases over the course of the years of his writings and his speeches and his decisions that he has called seriously wrong. Do you think that the moderate picture being painted by the advocates of Judge Bork on this program today, a very different picture than that's being painted when the administration goes out to the hustings and talks to its right-wing constituency, do you think that's an accurate picture that's being painted here today? I think Judge Bork is anything but moderate. And I was particularly surprised to hear uh, him described as being very similar to Justice Powell in important respects. And I want to bring up one particular case which I think is very revealing. And that's a case involving sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, it was a case where a woman was sexually harassed uh, over a period of time in her job. She brought a lawsuit complaining that her rights were violated under Title VII, a law that Congress passed prohibiting sex discrimination as well as race discrimination in the workplace. Justice Bork, in a dissenting opinion, said he thought it was awkward to try to call sexual harassment sex discrimination, and difficult to try to provide protection to women against sexual harassment in the workplace. That case ultimately found its way to the Supreme Court, and a unanimous Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Justice Rehnquist, in fact, with certainly Justice Powell included in this opinion, said that it was beyond question that sexual harassment was prohibited by Title VII. What will happen to the rights of women in particular and minorities if Judge Bork is confirmed? I think their rights are in serious jeopardy. This past June, I just recently read an interview that Judge Bork gave, a transcript of an interview, where he talked about the Equal Protection Clause's application to women as trivializing what the Equal Protection Clause is all about. I think seconds. that summarizes in, in, in many respects what he would do both for women and as you uh, pointed out with respect to so many of the important laws and constitutional decisions involving minority rights, how fragile the rights of minorities would be as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. McConnell, cross-examine, please. Um, Ms. Greenberger, I'd just like to say in, in preface that uh, our, our differences here are not uh, over constitutional values, but simply over the accuracy of your portrayal of Judge Bork's uh, views. Uh, for example, I have been, I think I've read every one of his writings in the area of constitutional law, and I've been able, unable to find a single criticism by Judge Bork of the Supreme Court's uh, gender discrimination equal protection cases, with the single exception of the case to which you refer, which involved 
rights to drink 3-2 beer. And it was in that context that he spoke of that as trivializing the Constitution. Can you, can you point me to a, oh, single, a single instance in which he oh, has criticized I can, such a case? I can indeed. And in fact, let me give you a little background as to what brings I'd me here today. I'd rather have you answer my question with which, a citation. Which would explain what, what the background is. We did a report setting the record straight. I've, I've read perhaps, the report, and the well, court you, report does not cite any instance either. That's why I'm asking. If you would look if at I the could. report, in 1971, <clears throat> the Supreme Court for the first time found that the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution provides some protection for women against Excuse sex discrimination. Me, you're taking up and what time, Judge, please. well, I have to answer your question. What Judge Bork did after that decision was criticize the application of the Equal Protection Clause to any groups outside of race discrimination. What he said, what Judge Bork what he said, said what, well, if you want me to answer, no I will answer. What Judge, race, Bork, uh, what Judge Bork me, said was that if you try to apply... He did not say that the decisions were wrong. What he said was, decision, what he said was applying the Equal Protection Clause outside of race and, discrimination and was wrong. Excuse those me. That was what those decisions oh, did. And, and the 3.2% beer, sorry, which is the second part. I hate to interrupt, part, but I, the I do have... The 3.2% beer case... I am entitled to ask you some questions. I'm answering the question. The 3.2% beer case... Please, please, please one, only, one, only one person can speak well, at a time. I, would you allow yourself to be cross-examined? I would, but I do want to finish the answer to the question of the beer case, because that's so... I'm going to have to interrupt you. Please let him proceed. Um, Ms. Greenberger, is it, is it not true that as a judge, uh, Robert Bork has participated in only one uh, gender discrimination case under the Equal Protection Clause, the Cosgrove case? Incidentally, I found the case buried in a footnote in your study on page uh, 18. And in that case, isn't it true that he recognized the right of plaintiffs to bring a, a uh, lawsuit charging gender discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause? No, 30 seconds to respond, please. That's, we dealt with that case, as did the White House, in fact, and said precisely the same thing about it. What he said was the case should be sent back to the lower court in order for the parties to develop a record, and he would deal with what the proper standard should be and what would happen in the case that at a later point. That doesn't sound like a judge that's saying that you can't bring a lawsuit under, uh, under the Equal your Protection time, Clause. Your time for cross-examination is up. Mr. McConnell, you can proceed with your summation, please. You have six minutes. You have six minutes uh, for your summation. I believe that um, Professor Dershowitz I'm is entitled sorry, to move I'm sorry, you're correct. First. Mr. Dershowitz, please. <clears throat> Thank you. The Robert Bork that's being defended here tonight is a very different Robert Bork than the one that was nominated for the Supreme Court of the United States by President Reagan. As uh, Professor Philip Curlin, the conservative colleague of Professor McConnell at Chicago, recently asked, will the real Robert Bork please stand up? The Senate, he correctly points out, quote, should not be asked to consent to the appointment of both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The issue before us today is not how Robert Bork will vote in any particular case, whether it be abortion, free speech, racial equality, church and state, or defendants' rights, important as these are to our continuing greatness as a free country. Many of us who strongly oppose the Bork nomination have supported other judicial nominees, with whom we fundamentally disagree on specific outcomes. I support, for example, the president's nomination to the Court of Appeals of Richard uh, Bernard Sagan and of Stephen Trott, both conservatives. As I wrote to several liberal senators recently, 
quote, I do not believe that any single orthodox view of constitutional adjudication should be deemed the established or mainstream one, so long as the nominee has a commitment to protecting liberty and individual rights, which this nominee does not. The issue over Bork is the role of the Supreme Court in our system of checks and balances as an insurance policy of liberty, a guarantee against tyranny. You know, I have one simple bottom line test for a Supreme Court appointee. I call it the judgment at Nuremberg test. In that wonderful movie based on the actual trial of the judges at Nuremberg, Burt Lancaster, you may remember, played a brilliant German law professor who had become a judge during the 30s. As the Nazis assumed power by democratic means with popular support, it fell upon this judge to stand up against the growing authoritarianism. But under his judicial philosophy, there was nothing for him to do but to go along with the popular will. The man sitting in judgment over this German judge at Nuremberg was a small town American judge played by Spencer Tracy. He didn't know much about legal philosophy, but he could recognize evil when he saw it, and he knew when enough was enough. For our insurance policy of liberty to work, our justices must be willing to serve as a check on popular excess. I'm not suggesting that Nazism is around the corner, nor am I suggesting that Robert Bork would go along with such extreme totalitarianism. But tyranny takes many forms, some unanticipated by our founding fathers. Robert Bork, by his actions during Watergate, which I call corrupt, and by his public record of disdain for liberty and for the role of courts in protecting it, notwithstanding the cover-up rhetoric that we've heard here today, Robert Bork fails the judgment at Nuremberg test. There are many, many qualified conservatives who would pass that test. Why take a chance that our constitutional insurance policy, toward which we have been paying premiums for 200 years, will suddenly be revoked if Bork's authoritarian views, and that's what they are, they are not conservative views, they are statist authoritarian views, if those views come to dominate this Supreme Court, we will have lost that insurance policy of liberty. So I urge you not to take a risk with liberty and to vote against the nomination of this radical authoritarian. Thank you. Mr. McConnell, your summation, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Mr. Moderator, in my opening statement, I pointed out that the charges made against Judge Bork are exaggerated, unfounded, and out of date. We've seen examples of all of those, and indeed, with the degree of contempt for the truth that I, I find uh, surprising, but maybe that's because I've been in Chicago and not in the uh, uh, swamplands here all this time. Uh, the, I, I, I have no choice, I think, but just to go through a number of the half-truths and non-truths that have been uh, thrown at the audience uh, tonight. Uh, we Half-truths. We've been told in quite passionate terms that Judge Bork believes that the constitutional decision holding racially restrictive covenants uh, unconstitutional was wrongly decided. What we were not told is that Judge Bork himself, as Solicitor General, filed a brief arguing that those covenants and all other racially discriminatory contracts are, in fact, illegal 
under Section 1981 of the United States uh, uh, statutes. It is not that Judge Bork favors racially restrictive covenants, and frankly, I think that is just such a, that is a nasty charge. What is important is that he believes that, re that civil rights and liberties should be founded upon their proper legal basis. Professor Dershowitz, however, goes so far as to imply in his questioning of Professor Sowell that uh, Judge Bork believes that the, that the uh, Brown versus Board of Education, the decision striking down segregated schools, was wrong, when in fact uh, Judge Bork has consistently and quite eloquently defended that decision. This is an important point because Judge Bork is someone uh, whose authority when he, uh, when he uh, uh, sees a constitutional provision which is being, uh, being violated is enhanced by the fact that he is not constantly crying wolf in a number of other areas and making up the law as he goes along. When Judge Bork stands for the Constitution, you know that he is standing for the law. He is not going to bring the entire judicial enterprise into the kind of disrepute that the, that the vacillating and politicized decisions that we sometimes see uh, often do. Um, there, Judge Bork is charged with having written a decision that cast doubt upon the sexual harassment theory under Title VII. When in, and and it's, uh, we're, we're told in terms of great indignation that the opposite position was adopted unanimously, when in fact Judge Bork dissented only on the two issues. One was whether an, an, the defendant has the right to introduce evidence that the, uh, that the plaintiff had, in fact, invited and solicited the very advances that she's now uh, complaining about. And secondly, the question whether the employer is automatically liable for, every, uh, for all of these, uh, any such actions that happen within the workplace, whether the employer knows about it or not. As it happens, both of those issues upon which Judge Bork dissented, the Supreme Court took uh, essentially the same position, and on the first one, a unanimous decision. Again, uh, a half-truth that really goes over into, uh, uh, into something, I think, much worse. Uh, we are told about the Watergate incident again, but what we're not told is that Judge Bork that afternoon uh, consulted with uh, Attorney General Richardson and Deputy Attorney General Ruckelshaus, who agreed that he ought to stay on. We're not told that the consequences of his resigning would have been that the entire Justice Department, uh, higher, uh, higher ranks were planning to uh, to resign uh, with him, and that the consequence of his staying on was both to maintain the integrity of the department and also that, uh, and through his very own steps, to continue the investigation of uh, Richard Nixon that uh, ultimately uh, led to his, to his resignation. It was Judge Bork who guaranteed the continued operation of the investigation and who arranged for the appointment of a successor uh, special prosecutor. Again, we're given a part of the story, but but just not given the facts which, which indicate uh, uh, that Judge Bork's position was one which was quite responsible, indeed courageous, given the enormous uh, uh, political pressure that was on him at the time to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to resign as Richardson and Ruckelshaus uh, had done. And through all of this, there's this incredible tone that Judge Bork is some kind of a crazy man. This is a person who was... I mean, put aside the fact that he served with great distinction as Solicitor General under, uh, uh, under Attorney General Levy, whom no one will describe as a crazy man and who is endorsing him and supporting him for office. Put aside the fact 
that, uh, that uh, Jimmy Carter's Attorney General and Jimmy Carter's White House Counsel both believe that Judge Bork ought to be confirmed. Uh, he goes off to, he goes, he returns to his uh, teaching career at Yale. Is he in some kind of a pariah for being this, uh, uh, this authoritarian extremist that Professor Dershowitz presents? No, instead he has made the first Alexander Bickel, uh, given the first Alexander Bickel Chair of Public Law, one of the highest honors Yale can bestow on one of its professors. He's then nominated to the D.C. Circuit, the second most important uh, court in the country. Is this dangerous, extreme, authoritarian turned down? No, he is confirmed unanimously by the United States Senate after having been given a rating by the ABA of extremely well qualified, their highest possible rating. What has Judge Bork done in the last few years that could possibly turn this practically paragon of establishmentarian uh, mainstream conservatism into this monster? Certainly his voting record on the court doesn't show that. He agrees with his colleagues unanimously 86% of the time. He agrees with the, with the judge whom uh, uh, Mr. Morrison uh, agrees is probably in the center of the court 91% of the time. I mean, I do not see how anyone can be an extremist and agree with Ruth Bader Ginsburg 91% of the cases that comes before him. It's just not possible. One thing that we have not heard tonight, we've heard a lot of, of opinions imputed to Judge Bork, but we have not heard much out of Judge Bork's own Mr. mouth. Mr. McConnell, I'm afraid um, you're out of time. Thank you very much. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Members of the jury, you have heard the arguments. Uh, the proposition before you is resolved that Robert Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court should be confirmed. Please pass your ballots to the clerks. While the ballots are being counted, I want to take the opportunity to thank our witnesses for the evening, Ms. Greenberger, Mr. Morrison, Mr. Fry, and Mr. Sowell, and our two trial counselors, Mr. McConnell and Mr. Dershowitz, and all those members of our audience who made this program a success. We have, we'll have some. Sorry, we had to get into it. Uh, uh, I've always wanted to have you on special. I do think very well of you. That's why I'm so surprised that. Uh, Stay seated until we have a verdict, okay? Was that the Bakke, the Bakke case brief that, that I was quoted as saying such nice things about you? Yes. Because I cut the witness off this evening. We have a verdict by the majority vote. Mr. Bork is confirmed as a member of the Supreme Court of the United States. Thank you, members of the jury. For On Trial, I'm Morton Kondracki. Good night.